Hello and welcome to another episode of the Black Peak podcast, Tet a Tet. My name is Chris Leahy. I'm a managing director and a co-founder of Black Peak. And I'm joined today by a good friend of the firm and a good friend of mine, Sam Olson. Sam is a co-founder of the strategic consulting firm Metis Asia. He's a seasoned expert on politics and business in Asia, and where he's lived for the past decade. An award-winning entrepreneur with deep experience of assisting Western companies to expand into Asia. He's also contributed to UK government policy on foreign and trade affairs. And he was a campaign manager for Prime Minister Theresa May. And he's a graduate of Oxford University. Sam is also the author of the highly popular newsletter, What China Wants. Uh, I'm a subscriber to that. I would highly recommend anybody listening to this podcast to subscribe to. Uh, we'll put a link in the in the notes to this podcast. So, Sam, welcome to Tete a Tete. Hi, Chris. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, delighted for you to be here. Um, today, we are going to be talking about geopolitical issues in the Asia-Pacific region, um, particularly now as they are emerging uh, and looking ahead uh, to the years ahead. We'll also discuss the outlook for trade in the region in light of those tensions and as the region recovers from the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's get straight to that. Um, first question, Sam, how, how do you view the geopolitical context in Asia Pacific as it's emerged with the new Biden administration uh, um, and in 2021 and I guess a year and a half after the outbreak of the, the COVID pandemic? Uh, well, good question. I think sadly, the way to describe it uh, in a nutshell is continuing its decline. Um, mm. and what I mean by that is that <clears throat> um, there was a feeling amongst many uh, in the West and in China that uh, President Trump's administration uh, was uh, causing a lot of problems between America and China. And this was slightly extraordinary uh, in, the, in the pure sense of the word, as in for many years, there had been um, quite a strong relationship between uh, the Chinese and the American political administrations. Uh, and when Trump started clamping down on this and initiating the, the US-China trade war, uh, this was a bit of uh, a, a bit of a bolt out of the blue for for many observers, as I said, both in the West and in China. Um, but I think what's more uh, important to realise is that um, there have been a lot of changes uh, over the last decade, which in hindsight probably made the the deterioration in relationship between China and the US a bit more likely. And you can't say it's all China's fault, and nor can you say it's all America's fault, but there have just been uh, realizations on both sides that they wanted to do things differently. And unfortunately, that has led to a, a, a clash uh, between the two countries. And, uh, and America is now calling uh, China a strategic competitor, as has the UK in its, in its recent integrated review about the Indo-Pacific uh, published in March this year. And a number of countries across the West are coming to terms with the new reality by, in effect, labelling China as a, as a strategic competitor uh, rather than someone that they want to actively court and, and do collaborative business with. Uh, that's not to say that uh, the trade links uh, are suffering, we can talk about that in a minute, but the geopolitical, um, the geopolitical relationship between the West 
and uh, and the developed nations that ally the West in Asia, which include, of course, South Korea and Japan, the relationship with that bloc and China is is going downhill and quite quickly. Uh, not everyone in Asia is the same. Southeast Asia is staunchly trying to remain neutral in all this, uh, as are several other countries. But countries like India um, have come off the fence recently, uh, uh, partly because of their own internal reasons uh, and internal clashes with, with China, but also because there is uh, sort of the beginnings of people trying to take sides uh, between the West and its allies and uh, and China. So uh, what we're seeing this year, as I said, uh, is the beginning, uh, well, the increased breakup uh, of geopolitical harmony. And I don't think that's going to get back uh, towards harmony anytime soon. How, um, how can we go back from, from this? What, what, what's going to happen? Or are we heading to a, into a very dangerous sort of grey zone of brinkmanship where, where something could go quite badly wrong? Um, I want to be able to say that we can go back, uh, but I really can't see it happening anytime soon. And the reason is quite simple. It's because at the end of the day, no matter what China says uh, it wants, uh, the, the ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party for China are incompatible with the way that America sees itself uh, as a global hegemon. And this all relates down to the 2049 plan, which China has, or the, or the Chinese dream, as it's, as it's also called or referred to, uh, which is, in, in essence, is to make China a great power again by 2049, but in reality, a lot sooner than that. And China's going about it in a very positive uh, and ambitious and, dare say, aggressive way. Uh, and they're really looking at every single element of what it means to be a great power, whether it's economic or political or, di or diplomatic. Uh, um, dominance, and they are pushing hard on those on those levers. Um, and America is looking at that and saying, "Okay, well, if China is going to be a great power, uh, does that mean we can be a great power alongside them?" And I think there is a an understanding on both sides that there can be only one, uh, and that means that uh, they they're not going to be able to settle at, at least for now. And maybe they will. Both sides will come to terms with it. They're not going to be able to settle on a harmonious relationship, um, which sees both striding the world as equals, uh, simply because both sides have got too much to lose for, for that to happen. As, as you know, the, the, the United Kingdom is, is sending a, a carrier strike group into the Asia-Pacific region, um, into the South China Sea, um, to establish freedom of navigation rights as well as participate in, in military exercises and this is something that hasn't happened for a very long time what first of all why are the british doing that and secondly what kind of message is it sending to to, to china and also to to british allies okay so the first the first question why is britain doing it it all stems to uh, the integrated review in march this year which was actually a very important document it was the first time that a major uh, western power has redefined its national strategy for many many years if not decades and uh, britain quite clearly set out in that document that it was going to be an indo-pacific power by 2030 uh, and moving away from Europe. 
as its main trade and made, uh, main political and economic partners. And so what that means is that the UK has got to put its money where its mouth is. And uh, that involves setting up lots more trade missions here. Uh, and the DIT, the Department for International Trade uh, leader here, Natalie Black, uh, has been given an awful lot of resources to help really cement British trade and, uh, and economic exchange in the region. Uh, but the, the military side is important because, again, there is a realisation, and this is partly thanks to China, uh, to watching what China is doing, there is a realisation in the West that, you, that they can't just rely on soft and economic power anymore. There does need to be some kind of, uh, of uh, armoured glove aspect too. And so the UK uh, is is sending its carrier strike group out here. But um, to answer your second question, what's that to do with the Allies? Well, the carrier strike group is, is specifically being set up to be a, um, a, a naval asset which brings together different allies. And it's, it's going to be um, with uh, sailing with an American destroyer all the way through, but there's going to be a Dutch naval vessel as well. Um, there are already American planes on the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier, as well as British planes. Uh, and it's highly likely that within the Asia-Pacific region, there will the, the fleet will be joined by Australian and maybe Japanese uh, vessels too, maybe even Canadian. Um, and, what, and that is all set up to show that uh, Britain is not working on its own, America is not working on its own, there is a coalition being brought together to stand up for the established world order. And this is not necessarily against China, it's not, there's no, there are no official communiques saying we want to put China back in its box or we want to make sure that China is watching what we're doing. But the, the effect of, of the sailing of that group through the Indo-Pacific through the, the South China Seas, uh, doing freedom of navigation patrols and bringing together all these different allies in tangible form uh, does send a clear message to Beijing that the West is not willing to uh, be a passive partner in international relations anymore and it will uh, use its military capabilities if it needs to. Uh, and that, by the way, is the final point, which is that the UK and its allies are showing that they have got the military capability to project force all the way around the world. Uh, China, despite its, its bluster, uh, hasn't got its aircraft carriers, its two aircraft carriers, into a position where they can be used operationally yet. Uh, it will take a few more years. And so it's just a reminder to Beijing that uh, you may have been putting a lot of money and effort into building your military forces, but you're not as operationally good as us for the moment. Right. That's a pretty comprehensive answer. Um, very interesting. Thank you. Let, let's move on a little bit uh, from the geopolitical issues and let's talk about sort of recovery from pandemic uh, in the re region and also the outlook for trade. What, what, what are you what, what are your views of the, the region in terms of its it, its response to the pandemic um, and, and uh, uh, how it's recovering and how do you expect that to, to play out? Well, it's a great question and I don't think it's possible to give a full answer yet. It's probably take a, it'll probably take a, a couple of years of reflection after the, the, the COVID has, has died down to, to really answer that fully. But what has been fascinating is that the, the ups and downs in public opinion, global public opinion about the right way to treat COVID. And if you remember a year ago, uh, or six months ago even, um, there was a lot of uh, outcry about how badly the West was, uh, especially the Anglo-Saxon countries uh, like Britain and America, and to a degree Canada, were dealing with the, uh, the pandemic, letting lots of people die, 
uh, they hadn't closed the borders, there was confusion about the response. And there's a lot of anger, especially with people here uh, in Asia who are sending their kids to schools in America and Britain, saying, why can't they just be more like us? But now, six months later, um, Britain and America have, in effect, led the world, in, uh, along with Israel and a few other smaller countries, in the vaccine rollout. And that means that there is a huge amount of uh, economic and cultural optimism in Britain and America about the, 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 the coming fortunes of those nations in the six months uh, remaining of this year, but also for the next year too. And that has not been necessarily um, matched by uh, what's happening in Asia, simply because there seems to be too much, in my opinion, too much reliance on a zero COVID strategy, which does not necessarily mean that the, the, the so far successful economies and governments in Asia, which have been um, praised for keeping COVID under control, uh, it doesn't seem very likely they're going to be able to come out economically of this of this winter, this hibernation that we've been seeing for the last year and a half, uh, anytime soon, because there are so many political and social risks to allowing COVID numbers to spike without a full vaccine rollout. And the full vaccine rollouts in this part of the world just aren't happening at anything like the scale that they are in the West. So it will be, I think, a, a, a tale of two, of two regions, to paraphrase Charles Dickens, uh, you will have a, a booming West probably for the next, uh, especially uh, again, the Anglo-Saxon countries. Uh, and then you will have a perhaps a sta more stagnating Asia for the next six months or even a year. Uh, but again, we can't really tell exactly what's going to happen. And, and let's let's have a chat about this in 2025 and see where we are then. <laughs> yes, that's right. We're all both still around. Yes. OK, <laughs> what um, what what new, in, in the context of this 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 these new tensions this recovery and the challenges from the pandemic the slow recovery in certain parts of asia what, what new trade opportunities are arising from these new dynamics why are we seeing so many more bilateral ag agreements um on on trade now the sort of balkanization of the, the you know the global trading um scenario why, why is that changed do you think well, there's two different questions there, but they both have an origin in the same thing, which is uh, the geopolitical order is, is kind of disintegrating. Uh, and what that means is, is that there is a, a, a strong collapse in the level of intergovernmental and internation trust. Yes. Um, and I and that has been going for some time, and you've seen a real pushback against globalization uh, in the last five-ish years. Um, and that uh, and that's a lot of people in Western countries, for example, who've seen manufacturing jobs such have been gutted. And there, the economic elites in the West were for a long time saying, Look, this doesn't matter. And, and actually, uh, we, we will come out of this stronger because, you know, of the supposed effects or the beneficial effects of, of globalization. Uh, and that allowed them to keep pushing ahead with integrated global supply chains, etc. So. Uh, what happened with COVID was that the, the trust that had, that had been fragmenting in the global system at the sort of public level, especially in the West, uh, started to be reflected in the governmental level as well. Uh, because as soon as COVID happened, what you saw was that the multilateral agencies, uh, whether it was the UN or whether it was uh, the WHO um, within that, or the European Union, 
Um, they just didn't perform in the way that it was expected. So if you look at uh, the WHO, there was a lot of discussion about how politicised it had been and how it had become in China's pocket. And then people started to say, well, we can't necessarily trust it. Look at the EU. Uh, when Italy was hammered, the first country in the EU to be, to be really disrupted by COVID, it reached out to the EU and said, please help. The EU basically left them hanging. Yes. Um, uh, and lots of countries in, in the Balkans and Europe they uh, really uh, did not get any support from the EU, despite having had decades of promises that we'll be there in your darkest hours. And to the extent that uh, China was able to fly in medical supplies and doctors, etc., into Serbia, and the Serbian president went on the tarmac and kissed the Chinese flag in front of the global cameras, at the same time saying the EU is not our friend anymore, uh, but China is. Uh, to see that level of disintegration of trust in just such a short time was phenomenal. And so I think that there is really a, uh, a big problem for multilateral agencies uh, to be able to say that we, we've got, we are the best solution for a country when they've, when they've done often so badly uh, over the last year and a half of, of global problems. And so there are many more multi, uh, sorry, bilateral agreements coming in as countries realise that actually their best friend isn't necessarily a grouping of other countries, but one or two individual nations. And the UK is, uh, is focusing on specific free trade agreements mm. with Japan, Australia, Canada, America, etc., etc., uh, <clears throat> rather than focusing on sort of big global um, arrangements. But that said, the, what I was very encouraged about was that uh, the UK is trying to create relationships with two multilateral organisations. One is ASEAN and two is the CPTPP uh, because um, that proves that, the, that not everyone is thinking that multilateral agencies are completely dead and that there is some life in, in, in the old multi-dog uh, yet. But it's going to be very tough uh, to, to stay away from uh, a continuing push towards country upon country relations. Um, what that, sorry, go on. It seems that way. Just, just to pick up on one point you made, I'm talking about Britain, but also Western economies more generally, why are they, they seem to be so interested in Southeast Asia? It seems all of a sudden, but perhaps it's not, maybe there's more to it. Maybe you could give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's because the people are beginning to realise the huge opportunities here. So a little stat, uh, in 1980-ish, uh, the uh, economies of ASEAN combined were one-eighth the size of Japan in terms of GNP. Uh, now, uh, Japan is just 1.6 times larger than the combined economies of ASEAN. And by 2030, some of the, uh, some of the um, predictions are saying that ASEAN is going to be a lot larger than Japan. And so uh, you've got, you know, 600 plus million people here, a massive amount of uh, youth and, and urban uh, consumers, all of which want things that come out of the West, for example, consumer products, um, new technologies uh, and fashion labels, etc. So there is enormous appetite here uh, for things that the West uh, want. But the West has been completely focused on internal trade with a little bit of Asia. Uh, and in Asia, their focus has been China. But recently, in the last few years, with that lack of trust beginning to show in China, I think people are thinking, well, if we can't go to China, but we still want to be in Asia, where else to go? And Southeast Asia is an obvious, uh, an, an obvious candidate. Quite a, quite a sort of a friendly Asian face there um, for, for Western economies, I guess, um, given the tensions with China. So just 
we're running out of time, uh, unfortunately. So just one more question, if I may, that try to wrap things up. You know, in context of what we just talked about, the geopolitical issues, um, the trade issues, the trade opportunities, the organisation of global trade and bilaterals and so on. How do you think the US um, views this new reality, uh, the new context? And, and equally, how does China look at it? Are we talking U.S. government or U.S. companies? I think we're talking about U.S. government. Because there is, uh, uh, there is a different answer if you yeah. look at U.S. companies, I think. Let's uh, talk government and companies. Okay, well, governments, um, the U.S. is really uh, beginning to push back on China. <clears throat> and that means that they need to focus on Asia. Because uh, I'm strongly of the belief that whoever can claim to be the Asian leader will be able to claim that they're the global leader. It, because Asia and the Indo-Pacific is so important now, both politically and economically, that without a without a leadership here, you can't really claim to, to, to be the global hegemon. And that's why, as, a, as an aside, Taiwan is so important, because whoever, if, if China manages to take back Taiwan over the next few years, decade or whatever, then that will prove to the to the rest of Asia that America's security guarantees aren't what they say they will be, and therefore uh, Korea and Japan and all its allies will say, actually, you know what, we can't trust, we, we can't rely on you, we can't trust you, so we'll go with China. And I think it will be as stark as that. The, the whole of Asia will lose confidence in America, and therefore America will become. Uh, will lose its position as global hegemon and China will, will take that mantle. But so America is really focusing on that, but they haven't really been doing much in the way, uh, so, except for the last year or so, uh, in the way of trying to push in, back into Asia. They've just been doing a lot of complaining, especially under Trump. He, I personally think he was a lot of hot air and rather than, uh, rather than any concrete actions. And, you know, one, the America is still very good at FDI into a, Asia, especially Southeast Asia. But in terms of the trade, it, most countries, almost every country except for Bhutan in Indo-Pacific, their main trade partner is China, not America, except for Bhutan. And that was 40 years ago. That was completely the other way around. So America's got a lot of catching up to do. Uh, and China knows this. And so both governments will be focusing on trying to trying to get more and more allies. And that means putting more effort into trade, putting more effort into FDI, and trying to get the economic benefits of Asia on more on their side. And that's where the government uh, and, the, and the private sector overlaps. You were, you, we're already seeing huge efforts from Chinese companies in the last few years in, uh, to push into Southeast Asia and to push into the rest of Asia. Um, we haven't got time to go into all the stats, but just a, a tiny little one is that the land prices for factories in central Vietnam now are the highest ever rate, driven entirely by Chinese companies moving down there uh, to set up factories as part of China's economic move, movements in the region. Um, and um, uh, American companies are increasingly uh, move, looking outside of China and looking to the rest of Asia because they're, they're being encouraged by the American government to engage more with with uh, with Asia, but they're not really wanting to do so much with China. Companies aren't necessarily pulling out of China, but what they're doing is that they're taking their budgets and saying, let's move to different parts, whether it's India, whether it's the rest of East Asia or Southeast Asia. So there's just going to be so much more economic activity pushed by the outside into, into Southeast Asia and the rest of Asia 
but there were, but it's really important. Just as one last comment is that uh, recently, in the last few years, um, intra-Asian trade has taken over from uh, Asian trade outside of Asia. And so um, Asia now has got to that stage where actually it's less and less reliant on what the, the rest of the world wants. And they're just focusing really on inter-Asian trade is, is, a, is a potential and a possibility now for many Asian countries, which hasn't been the case up until this point. Right, Sam, you've covered an awful lot of ground there today. So th thanks very much. We're going to have to wrap it up. There's probably a whole series of podcasts that we could we could uh, launch and, and, and publish on a number of those topics if we, we dig into them. So that's for another day. Um, but that's all we have time for uh, to, on today's show. Um, thanks to everybody for, for listening. We hope you enjoyed and got as much out of it as, as I did. Uh, and Sam, um, above all, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, and uh, look forward to discussing it more. Thank you.